he's definitely an interesting guy. He also became, as another aside, during their hiatus, he became a professional magician. And so... (laughs) Dude, you know times are tough when you go from being a musician to a magician. My God. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where longtime friends and musicians break down a classic album from the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll give you some history on the band, on the album, and then we'll do a deep dive on a handful of select tracks. At the end, we'll all vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die. And then we'll randomly select next week's album. My name is Alan. I've been a musician for over 20 years and have been critiquing music ever since I first heard my parents' record player as a kid. And uh, But I'm excited this week to be uh, kind of leading us through this conversation. We're going to go through an album that has been described by the producer of the album, no less, as a patchwork pinch loaf from a band <laughs> who, <laughs> at its top dollar best, makes blandly entertaining college rock. Wow. <laughs> I'm guessing a pinch loaf is a turd. <laughs> Pinch loaf is a turd for for any of our right. non-Americans, or it means feces. So I think we're off to a, a a great start here. The album, of course, is called Surfer Rosa by a band called Pixies. Now I, I want to just get this out of the way uh, at the outset, at, at the risk of being called out by by Tom probably. <laughs> their records, all their collateral shows them just as Pixies, right? Just the plural Pixies, but. A lot of people seem to call them the Pixies. Even in interviews, they refer to themselves as the Pixies. So I'm just going to say the Pixies. I Whether it's right or wrong, I want to put that caveat out there right now. You're telling okay. me this band doesn't have consistency? They seem like they're just so tight. And like everything well, they say so the practiced. really loud and then Pixies really quiet. Oh, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> if you haven't heard this album before, you know, don't worry about it. We'll give you a taste of a of, of few tracks and, and kind of get you up to speed on everything you need to know about this album. But without further ado, let's jump right in and get to some music with a sample from the opening track, which is called Bone Machine. Now, let's go around the horn here, and uh, we'll introduce ourselves by way of a uh, quick tweet-length review of Surfer Rosa. Let's start with you, Tom. All right. I'm going to keep it nice and short. I'm just going to quote what my son said when I turned this on in the car. Basically, immediately said, like the drums, don't like the singing. (laughs) (laughs) That wraps up most of my experience with this album. It's concise. (laughs) All right. Yeah, good. Hey, I think we could all use a lesson in uh, brevity from, from him. 
All right. Well, then, then I'm going to switch it up because I got a, I got a couple tweets. We'll see which one you guys like. All right. <laughs> so, hey, everybody, this is Adam. And my, my tweet length review is, the Pixies are known for their dynamic, loud, quiet, loud shifts in their songs, which made it extremely satisfying when I discovered my own dynamic for listening to this album, which is loud, quiet, off. <laughs> and then my other, my other one was the Pixies had an outsized influence, and among their lineage are Nirvana, Radiohead, Smashing Pumpkins, and Weezer. However, those other bands betray their ancestry by not sucking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, this is uh, this is good. I like the direction this is going so far. Not for the Pixies, of course, but for uh, for discourse in general. So my my tweet length review is, do you remember when you were a kid and there was something that you didn't like? You know, maybe it was a movie or a sports team or whatever. But then you find out the next day that like all your friends like it and you immediately change your mind and pretend you liked it the whole time. <laughs> After this week, I think that might be happening with a large group of hipsters. I can't imagine. No, <laughs> this this music is hip. What are you talking about? Yeah. So let, let, let's, let's jump right in here. I, I think Adam, you, you kind of hit on this, this right off the bat. And I think the, well, first of all, Surfer Rosa, this is the, the debut album by the Pixies. It was released in, in March of 1988 on British label 4AD. Is this their debut album though? They had a, what is it? Something, come on Pilgrim that they released before that. So this was their debut studio album. Okay. The, okay. Come on, come on, Pilgrim. You can tell that studio magic slathered all over this album. It really, it really, they really can't imagine what the prior one was like. <laughs> well, I think the Come On Pilgrim was literally recorded for like a thousand dollars and it was mostly all demos. And so I think the hardcore fans are are into that. And I think there actually might have been a release. Later on, that combined, it was like a double release of Surfer Rosa and Come On Pilgrim as a bunch of bonus tracks. But I think for all intents and purposes, this is this is considered their, you know, studio debut, right? But I mean, you could describe this album as mostly all demos, too. Like, there's a couple of songs that are, like, produced, <laughs> but a lot of them seem like we hit play, we did something, and then we said, print it, let's go, let's move on. Yeah, I think that that definitely was happening with this album as well. Just and, get it out the door. Well, just get it out the door. But I also think the the band themselves, their vibe is very, you know, there, there's a little bit of that punk influence. There's a little bit of the surf, a little bit of the garage. Basically, and, and I'll say this too right off the bat, there are some stuff I like on this album. There's a lot that I don't like. I will give them props, though, in that they play as if they don't give a fuck if anyone likes it. Or if anyone thinks it's good or not. And and I can respect that. Okay. I agree with that. But I, my note on here is that this album is so painfully aware of its own hipness that it gets in oh. the way of my enjoyment of it. And I think that they were writing that kind of, or they were having that kind of attitude toward music that I particularly don't like, which is like, Oh, what you like, like good playing and melodies and stuff square, man. We're like on the edge. We're like, so far out there and like yeah i do like good melodies i do like good playing i think you should get good at your fucking instruments um the fact that this band has a dedicated lead guitar player is mind-blowing to me these solos are atrocious (laughs) i really don't understand how you could be a like 
you could self-describe as the lead guitar player for a band and have no concept of key, have no concept of modes, no concept of really anything melodically pleasing. And I guess that's what they were going for, but that's not it's not my cup of tea. Now, just because it's not my not my cup of tea doesn't make it not an important album, but I did not enjoy listening to this album for the most part. Let's let's continue on that on that theme because I think as Adam mentioned in his tweet length review, you kind of have to start with the just the sheer scope of influence of this band because that really is I think their sort of lasting legacy, uh, you know, beyond the music itself and beyond the the members who were you know had some characters in this band. Um, they're still playing, by the way, but you know it, it's uh, mostly just raking in the, the the cash in various tours at this point, but. I think, again, whether you like them or not, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that they're one of the most influential bands of all time. Like, let that sink in for a second. That is. I did. Yeah, man. Like, as I, I I had a bunch of of notes this week that as much as I hated this week, I kind of knew where I was going to wind up going because there are aspects that I was like, oh, this is all the stuff I loved in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like Weezer, even like Bush, you know, like just there's so much stuff that and for this to have come out in 88. And yes, I know I threw Bush in there and Tom was like, wait, what? You like Bush in the 90s? <laughs> I was, was going to be like, Who Adam like Bush, Bush in the 90s. <laughs> wait, if, if this band was responsible for Bush, then uh, yeah. then they're off the list. Yeah. By yeah. Razor blade suitcase. But <laughs> I thought that when I looked and saw that this came out in 88, I was kind of floored. This this felt very much like early to mid nineties. I know there's not that much time in between, but when you look at at nineteen eighty eight, I, I feel like there was a lot of stuff going on, and this didn't, this wasn't what was kind of mainstream at the time. Certainly was not mainstream. I don't think these guys were going for mainstream. Just as a sure. like, I just looked up some of the popular songs of nineteen eighty eight, and number one song of nineteen eighty eight, "Man in the Mirror" by Michael Jackson, great song. But yeah, also released yeah. that year was Get Out of My Dreams by Billy Ocean <laughs> slash yes. Get Into My Car. Get out of my dreams. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, a, a song that I actually think is kind of a banger, and it's it's that song Electric Blue by Ice House. Are you familiar? You guys familiar with that song? I'm sure I do. Not by I'm name, sure but it. it's still it's like uh, I just freeze every time you see it. That song's been running through my head ever since I just saw the title. It's so catchy. And these songs are so not catchy. They were giggling <laughs> for the exact opposite of that. But, you know, you flash forward four years later, you're right. And this music took over the world. Well, better versions of this music took over the world. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's fair. And just to go back to some of these names real quick that Adam mentioned, I have a few more, but... I was sort of aware of them being this cult favorite. I, I knew of a few of their songs. I hadn't really heard this album in its entirety. I had heard the a few of the the kind of marquee tracks off this this uh, album, but I was sort of surprised at at how influential they were. I mean, you mentioned Nirvana, Radiohead, Smashing Pumpkins, even bands like Arcade Fire, Pavement, Alice in Chains. Like, I mean, that's a who's who of of alternative rock. But I think even beyond just it being a direct influence for those bands. He's drawn effusive praise from people like David Bowie and and Bono, which we'll take that for what that's mm, worth. Right. 
But, you know, people who know what they're talking about seem to think they're great. And, you know, the influence wasn't just like, yeah, we like we liked the Pixies or we listened to them like bands were literally trying to copy their sound. And just to bear that out, here's a direct quote from Kurt Cobain about the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. I was basically trying to rip off the Pixies. I have to admit it. When I heard the Pixies for the first time, I connected with that band so heavily, I should have been in that band, or at least in a Pixies cover band. We used their sense of dynamics, being soft and quiet, and then loud and hard. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's I. That's something. I find there's this interesting dichotomy going on here with, with Pixies generally, in that they were trying to be this, like, counterculture, underground-style band. But the reason they had this outsized influence is because they actually got kind of popular. And so they like you look at other bands of the ilk that were coming out at the time, like a band like Butthole Surfers that was around at the time, or like Dead Milkmen were kind of doing sort of similar stuff, but they just never got as popular as Pixies did. And so now it's like they had this influence because they were this new underground sound. But because they, the only reason they had that influence because they actually raised out of the underground and got kind of mainstream and popular, right. you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And, and I think, to be fair, like they really didn't sound like much else at the time. You know, you had, you know, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction came out right around this time. It came out in 87, but it was getting a lot of traction in, in, in uh, 1988. You also had, you know, college rock bands like R.E.M. that were starting to kind of come up through the underground. Yeah, yeah. And the Pixies, I think, were a lot, a little bit of each of those where, you know, a lot of noise, but a lot of, you know, sort of some pop sensibility sprinkled in. But I think they were the right band at the right time. And interestingly enough, just to give a little uh, history on the band. So they, they, they came together in 1986 at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So this guy, Joey Santiago, the uh, virtuoso lead guitar player, (laughs) (laughs) he uh, on campus meets a a fellow named Charles Michael Kittreds Thompson IV, who, of course, went under the stage name for the Pixies of Black Francis. Yeah, I'm going to call him I'm going to call him Charlie Thompson for the entirety of this of this episode, by the way. Just to stick it to him. I, listen, I've known one other person in my life who was a the fourth, and they were a gigantic fucking asshole. And I got to tell you, Charlie Thompson slash Black Francis seems like a gigantic fucking asshole. I don't, I don't know why, but he really did come across as an asshole. Well, we have a friend. Uh, all of us have a mutual friend who is the fifth. Who maybe he must, maybe he like you know skipped over that that part of it, but. Uh, Nonetheless, I digress. Interestingly, so so Black Francis, he he has also gone under the name of Frank Black for his solo projects. And actually, so I have a, a Frank Black story that I think is pretty funny. So I don't know if I've told this on the podcast or not before, but when I used to live in, in Eugene, I worked at this restaurant and there was this guy that would come in all the time, this big, heavy set guy with bald and, and glasses. And one day he comes in and he orders and he goes and sits down and a line cook comes up to me and he gives me his phone number on a piece of paper and he goes, Hey, can you go give my phone number to that guy over there? And I was like, why? He's like, just (laughs) (laughs) no, even better. So he goes, he goes, just, you know, if he ever needs a drummer, just so that he has my contact information. So this guy was a drummer who I played a little bit with. So I walk over to the guy. I didn't recognize him. 
I hand him a piece of paper with this guy's phone number on it. And I go, Hey, uh, uh, one of my coworkers wanted me to give you this. He said, if you ever need a drummer and he just looks at me like, all right, whatever, you know, fuck off. I go back. I go, who was that? And he's like, that's Frank black. <laughs> Shut up. And I'm like, you gave me your phone number, some line cook to play drums for like this famous musician. So nonetheless, like I kind of knew the band, but I, I didn't know what he looked like. His kids fucking trashed the place every time they came in. Um, <laughs> but he, he was a pretty nice guy. Anyway, so that's my Frank Black story. Nice. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is about the lyrics on this album that kind of bothered me a little bit. I just, he, for some reason, he didn't come off well. And I know we'll probably get into like the band's ultimate demise and then before their re reformation later, but he does sound like he was kind of a dick and the other people in the band sort of didn't like him very much. He is a presence. So he was the, and still is, I mean, the, the primary songwriter, primary creative control, you know, everything really runs through him. But I, I did get the sense that he was kind of a dick. In my limited interactions with him, it was really impossible to tell. But when you hear about some of the stories, uh, I don't know if he was just like an aloof kind of guy or what. But, you know, and I know we try not to talk about appearances, uh, but he he really like does not look like a typical front man. Like he, he just has that look about him of like, man, this guy just seems like there's something like you know, eating at him, but he's a little schlubby. The, oh yeah. I did. I think he lost some weight recently maybe, but like back in, you know, 2004, when they, after they had broken up and got back together, there's a documentary about this. Um, it's actually called loud, quiet, loud. There you, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at that period of time, he was huge, you know, so I don't know what was going on there, but the, the story I found that led me to think maybe he's not like the, doesn't have the most people skills of all time was that, when in 92, when the band broke up for the first time, he announced that they were breaking up on BBC during an interview without telling the band first. So, oh man. And, you know, and in the documentary, there's a few scenes where, you know, he's, you know, one scene he's walking, you know, to, to his tour bus after show. And there's like all these fans that are standing there, like so excited to see him. And he doesn't even look at him. Like he just puts his head down and straight up walks into the bus. Well, I got to no. tell you that that band breakup story, it, there's even another level of dickishness to that. And that Ooh, let me hear it. he called the other guitar player, Santiago, but he apparently faxed to Kim <laughs> Deal and to uh, the drummer, uh, what's his list? David Lovering. To David Lovering, yeah. He faxed them that the band was breaking up. He didn't even call them. Didn't have the <laughs> decency for a phone call. What a jerk. Yeah, that's real. That's real lead singer material right there. I, I also read that he was very covetous of being the creative driver of the band, and Kim Deal wanted to write songs, and he was like, "I am the creative in this band. You are not the creative in this band." And so she sort of is like, "Whatever. I guess I'll take a back seat." And then Kim Deal goes on and starts the Breeders, who fucking outsells Pixies entirely with their album Last Splash that goes platinum. Like, good for her. Yeah, no, she she killed it, man. She's great. And honestly, she comes off as by far the most like endearing person of the band. And and I, you know, I'm kind of going just by like interviews and and the documentary where I assumed that she would come off as some like stuck up kind of rock star chick. No, she's like just super down to earth talk to every, you know, talks to all the fans and, and all that stuff. But what, what's kind of funny about that is 
she was the third member that was brought into the band after Frank Black and, and Joey Santiago had kind of got together. She wasn't even a bass player at the time, though. But what happened was Francis put an ad out this pre Craigslist. It was probably printed out at a record store or something. This was all the ad said. Band seeks bassist into Husker Du and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Please, no chops. <laughs> Which pretty much tells you all I need to know about their sound. Like holding it. Yeah, right. We just need somebody who can stand and hold it down. I was annoyed by the hubris because he was a guitar player. Of a guitar player just showing up and being like, yeah, I could be a bass player. How hard is it? Like, come on. Fuck you. <laughs> like, but well, I- it fit their sound. I think she, so she was the only one, shockingly, who responded to the, <laughs> to that post. <laughs> and she was a guitar player. And I, I think she just liked the music. And, you know, I, I think she was like, hey, if you find a place for me in this, that's great. And then she sort of picked up bass along the way. So, you know, none of these guys, as you mentioned, are like super sophisticated players or there's not a lot of like technical virtuosity or, or any of that. Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty low down. I got to say, you'd mentioned Bono earlier. And if we're just doing like a research dump here, I'm going to throw in my, the favorite fact <laughs> that I found out, which is that they were, they were booked as the uh, opening act on the American leg of U2's Zoo TV tour in 1992. <laughs> I could not think of a worse fit. <laughs> like, what the hell were they thinking? You know that's Bono just trying to be cool. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm hip. Yeah, man. Oh, I know this band on the ground. Right. <laughs> well, this is, this is a great underground band that I found. It. Yeah. As he puts Pixies. his wraparound glasses <laughs> on his head. <laughs> Alan, by the way, that that Henry Rollins interview that you sent around where he was talking about how much he hates you too, really just <laughs> warmed my heart. It, it did warm my heart. It's like, yes, Henry Rollins, you go. It, yeah, that made me actually regret giving any kind of cred to Adam Clayton. He, <laughs> He's like they the, the worst episode. rhythm section of any popular band. <laughs> All right, Let, let's uh, let's get into the the music here and check out the opening track. We'll do a little more of of the song Bone Machine. So this song for me is entirely saved by the Kim Deal vocal part of the Your Bones Got a Little Machine. That makes it interesting. Everything else is kind of not all that interesting. Like, I I don't mind the lyrics. I I like the line where he says, I was talking to Preachy Preach about Kissy Kiss. He bought me a soda, then tried to molest me in the parking lot. Like, that's funny. I I, you know, I can I can dig on that, but generally speaking. This does not have a lot of what I normally look for in a song. I thought that the, the if you want to call it that riff, is, I'm going to sound so pretentious when I say it was uninspired, but like the idea that you could like base your entire song around that, 
it needed a bit more. Yeah, this this one, <laughs> I did have a line where that his delivery, and, and it goes back to something that Tom said, which is like, just kind of how pretentious they are, knowing what they were trying to do, and the vocal affect, affectation that he puts on a lot of these lines just really rubbed me. And I went and I talked to who I was like, no, you sound like shitty shit, man. Like, it's just not... <laughs> It's not good. Uh, you know, there was, I think there is a lot of humor in some of these lyrics, as, as you mentioned, Tom. I did read somewhere that a lot of the songs on here, to, to, to give him a little bit of cover, that, you know, he wrote in, you know, five to 10 minutes because they were about to start recording. And so no. the, the, a lot of the lyrics were like, yes, it's shocker. <laughs> but I, I did think that this was a, for better or worse, a fitting introduction, you know, introducing this band to the world because. It had like every element of their style. It had it had the loud, quiet, loud thing, which was that. I, I didn't realize that was that revolutionary, honestly. But At, isn't that just called song dynamics? I don't understand well, why everyone is piling tons of praise for just having a change in your song. I think that what they did, which I don't even like, but they used loud, quiet, loud as a excuse to not have to write another part like well what if we do the same thing but it's just really loud this time it's like you could just write another part and then you have like what we call a song which is multiple right. parts put together we throw it back to what we talked about with the sam Cooke, you know episode of like they bring it on home to me it's just a a a a the entire time that right. can work sometimes if you have a very well constructed a part but if you have a kind of crappy constructed a part and you're like well how about instead of writing a b part we just do it really loud this time I don't know. Just write another part, man. Yeah, I, I do think it's it's a little bit of a playbook that may have been kind of novel at the time, I guess. But I I do think they kind of go back to that over and over again, where like you know, it, it, there's definitely a dynamics thing. But I, I I do think there's there probably was something hip at the time about you know the bottom totally drops out and then you know, goes from zero to a hundred again, you know, not my thing, but I, I can, I can kind of, I'll give him a little, little cover there. This song also, actually the, the intro of this song does have something that I feel lasted well into the nineties and two thousands, which is just like the intro. That's the drum and a simple bass line. How many Green Day songs start like that? How many, you know, just a ton of 90s bands started with that style of song. Is this where this started? If not, maybe it's just where it got popular. It, it might have been. But I do think that if you listen to a lot of the popular music at the time, it was more dynamically consistent. You know, it kind of started out big and got bigger or it sort of stayed poppy level the whole time. There wasn't these wild swings going on in that so i could see that being revolutionary and it does make it easy to have a wild swing if you're just like well we're just gonna have drums and bass and then the drum and bass will continue to the same thing we'll have a guitar coming and go right. anything else is then your dynamic yeah well you mentioned the the drums and i do think this is one area where you know i don't know what production techniques if any so and and actually to sort of close the loop on that opening quote that i gave about the producer kind of going on to, to hate this. Um, the producer was Steve Albini, who actually, funny enough, has kind of come into our sphere and, and you know, a lot of musicians lately for this like 
20 tweet screed about his hatred of Steely Dan. So if, if you haven't, if you <laughs> oh, haven't seen that's that, that's the guy. That's Steve Albini. That's yeah. the same guy. Oh my god, that's hilarious. And he's he's wrong about that. But yes, he's wrong. But they're that. they're pretty damn funny. They're very funny. yeah. He he seems like he's the kind of guy that has an opinion on everything. So hey, maybe we should bring him on this show. Actually, that might <laughs> he might fit in well. Yes, that's good. It's a tone. Match, you know, if we right? if we want to slum it by having some down market guy like Steve Albini on, I guess we could maybe make that happen. <laughs> Steve, call my assistant. Okay. <laughs> He's probably got like a crawler that's, you know, scanning for his name, his name being mentioned. Reference. <laughs> but I do think one of the things that he did really well on this album and possibly something that carried on to the alternative era was I think the drums are recorded really well. Like I think the drums are ballsy. The playing yeah. is is I think the playing is great. It's not technical, but it's exactly what this band needs. I, I think the some of the production choices were were cool, but for the most part, I do think he's the kind of guy that just got out of the way. As a producer, just as a, as an interesting aside, he apparently doesn't believe in taking royalty credits as a producer. Hmm. He only does that if he's the sound engineer or something. He gets all his money know. up front. <laughs> well, I don't know what this guy's deal is, but I think he is the guy who also did In Utero. So you know, he's he's definitely mm-hmm. been around, but. But kind of a kind of a weird dude. Yeah, I gotta say, David Lovering on this album, you can tell that he was very engaged in the song crafting process and the song production process. He's very rarely popping out rock beat one. You know, he is like, I'm going to write a beat specific for this song. And I, I respect that a lot. I think that that is a sign of you could be a good drummer and do that, but I do find oftentimes that good drummers that aren't super engaged are just like, well, I can just kind of kick this beat because this is a cool beat that I know. And like, but does it fit the song? Like, I don't know. It's a cool beat I know. Yeah, it, it comes off as not pretentious either. I think that's that's the thing. Is like he seems like a very earnest guy. And and actually, the way they found him was he he was kind of an amateur drummer who had kind of been out of playing for a while and was kind of had a regular day job. And I guess he was a friend of a friend of, of Kim deal. And she kind of pulled him back in to the band, but you know, he, he's a, he's definitely an interesting guy. He, he also became as another aside during their hiatus, he became a professional magician. And so, (laughs) dude, you know, times are tough when you go from being a musician to a magician. My God. I'm just hearing Job. That's exactly what came to mind. The final countdown just like blaring in the background. You know, I saw something the other day. I made a terrible mistake. It was like listing the net worth of entertainers. And David Copperfield is worth like $980 million or something like that. What? It is obscene. Dude, I would saw live people in half for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's had a residency in Vegas for 40 years. So you got to imagine he's doing quite well. Good Lord, man. We picked the wrong career. I think. Right. All right, let's uh, let's move along here and talk about our next track on the list, which is a song called Gigantic. And this I know, his teeth as white as snow. What a gas it was to see him. Walker every day into a shady place with a lip she said. Hey, Polly, 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 let's have a ball. Hey, Polly, 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 let's have a ball. 
What's the song called, Alan? <laughs> I, I couldn't tell. They only say I, I forget. it once or I forget twice already. in the song. They didn't really reinforce it enough. Why is this a four-minute <laughs> song? Why is this a four-minute long song? That's my main question about it. The first 20 minutes are basically feline torture. And then the last like minute and 15 seconds are outro. There's f- nothing to this song. Yeah, there's not a ton going on there. I, I made a note, too, that it should have stopped at around 2.20. Same, yeah. same. Well, yeah. other than, I, I do think this is a cool song. I think this is this is actually the only single from the album. Really? Really, yeah. And it's the only, it's one of maybe one or two songs in total that Kim Deal sings lead on. So, again, back to the creative control. I, I think she wanted to do a little bit more, but Black Francis, Frank Black, was, wasn't too into that. I think her voice sounds really great on this. Like it's, it's not, it's not pretty or, or sophisticated, but I think it sounds honest and and cool. It definitely should be a two minute song. The jam is really just, it's not even a jam. It's just like, you could have looped the, you know, a few bars and just <laughs> played that for another couple minutes. The subject matter though, was, it was pretty edgy. You know, the gigantic, what, what is this about? Well, it's about sex between a black man and a white woman in the fifties. Oh mm. Yeah. So Jeez. the the title a is big, exactly big what you think. Oh <laughs> that just reinforces what some of the other song titles that could be used in your mom jokes. I thought. Any there's a couple you could combine Bone Machine, Break My Body, and Gigantic, which is all things your mom said to me last night. You can. Sorry. Oh, Adam! Cut out the dick jokes here on the uh, the podcast, but I—I hey, I mean, that's that's the subject matter, though. That's that's right, where we right. are. Yeah, there you go. I did that's not know good. that, and I said, "There's not a lot of meat on the bones of this song," but I guess there is a lot of meat on the bones. <laughs> uh, well, funny enough, I think the idea of these like sexual sort of you know subject matter shows up in a lot of these songs. Back to to Bone Machine. So again, there's no like nuance here. It's it's. In an old interview clip, they were asking Kim Deal, like, what what's the song about? And she, she just says deadpan. She's like, it's about pelvic thrusting, uh, fucking, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm starting to I'm starting to see the appeal of, of Pixies now. I like Kim Deal. She, I don't know what it is. And we can maybe dissect if it's a timbre thing. But you're right. Her voice does lend itself to a little bit more of that, what, verisimilitude. Like, I buy her as a singer. I, I I feel like I like her as a person based upon the way that she comes off in these songs. And I feel like I don't like Frank Black as a person or, you know, Black Francis or uh, Charlie Thompson as a person based upon the way he comes off in these songs. And they're both singing kind of the same subject matter stuff. It's still a delivery thing, maybe? I don't know. She just comes off as a little bit more, like authentic to me and, and that definitely yeah, comes was, across in the documentary yeah usually I, I complain about key and pitch and tone and stuff and and there are definite sour notes from her in this you know specifically with that higher background harmony it's sometimes a little off but in comparison to people to specifically female singers who put on you know this like throaty or you know that kind of millennial thing that's going on now it's like she just sounded like she was singing and that's her voice. And it's not perfect, but yeah, it's earnest. It's honest. And I I, I did appreciate that. So I'm, my mind is still reeling a little bit that you're telling me that this is basically about like illicit interracial sex and the 
fetishization of black men by white women as being well endowed. So like, if you're going to go down that road, why, why are you going to say a big, big love? Just say a big, big dick. If you're going <laughs> to like, if that's where you're going and you're trying to be edgy, just say that. It kind of, you maybe know, there was love involved as well. You never you know. know. What? That's you a never good know. Point. Yeah. Maybe it was a real emotional connection that was going on there. Right. Yeah. Like when she talks about the, the big black mass, you know, that's, uh, I mean, the first line of the song is, and this I know, his teeth as white as snow. I mean, oh, you, shit. you could not write that song today. No, <laughs> you shouldn't write that Definitely song. Definitely not. <laughs> no. Back then, even, but. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I kind of can't believe I didn't pick up on that. I will say where she chooses to come in with the lines rhythmically is interesting. That was that was the one thing I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like you caught me off guard as to where you came in. You're not coming in on the one with your lines. So, you know, again, that this seemed like it had a little bit more thought put behind it than a lot of the other songs. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is a, a, a pretty cool tune. It's, it's catchy. This is the the chorus is where I've, got the Weezer sort of vibe. Um, that yes, I really wasn't getting yeah. in other places. So, kudos. And if you didn't get it the first time, they give you like 12 <laughs> more opportunities to get that Weezer vibe because they really hammer this course to death. They really go hard on it. Well, repetition, you know, it's got to beat that shit into the ground. It gets stuck in my head, so mission accomplished. True. Speaking of getting stuck in your head, let's go to the next track off this album called Where Is My Mind? Stop. I think most people would recognize this song as the final scene in, in Fight Club where all the buildings are are blowing up. Uh, no way. I haven't seen that movie in 20 years. So oh, yeah, yeah. When they put it together. It, that's the song. And I think this is a awesome song. The, to me, the, this almost didn't feel like it belonged on the album. Like, it almost sounded like something else. I thought the 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 wailing... You know, that's Kim Deal basically screaming in a, or not screaming, but wailing in a, in a bathroom. That was one of the, hmm. the Albini specials. That's how they, they got the vibe or the, the reverb or that, I guess that tone. Yeah. They may uh, have done some hurt. other things too, but yeah, that was, that was the, the situation basically. i I think that this song has the most like melodic figure of any song. Like it, it, it sounds a little bit more like a song. And I, my note is like, you can tell this is the one Albini was like, let's, let's work this one. Let's put a little bit more work into this one. And it shows this is a, this is a cool song. This is a good song. Yeah. I think this is their, probably their most well-known song. It's, I think it's, yeah, again, I think it's a great song. I, I love that Kim Deal's kind of wailing overlaid against the guitar riff. And that guitar riff is 
super catchy. I will say this, that this was inspired from his time living in Puerto Rico to learn Spanish uh, when he was in college, which as a lower middle class kid, just it smacks of like spoiled rich kid who's just like, I'm going to go live in Puerto Rico for six months so I can learn Spanish. Like you could learn Spanish in Boston. They teach it at the school that you go to. (laughs) (laughs) He wants to say that he's been around the world. Where have you been? Puerto Rico. I've been to Puerto Rico. I mean, I didn't need a passport for it, but you know, I had to show my driver's license. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Again, I can't, I, I I don't want to keep hammering on how much I sort of came away from this with just a bad taste in my mouth about uh, old Charlie Thompson here. But uh, yeah, I, I, I really did. And I also will echo Alan that this is a cool song. This is a catchy song. I like this song. This is a good song. This is where the loud, quiet, loud works really well. Well, and I think this song, it's it's placement in Fight Club, like not to anchor to that too much, but my memory, even you know, before doing a deep dive on this album, the the feeling that that evoked in watching that movie, it was the music that like stayed with me as being really just like the perfect kind of closeout song for that movie. So I think the way it it worked in that film, I think was a very, very tasty choice. This was one of the first tracks. Yes, I agree with everything you guys said. This this is a solid tune. I I can't, I don't know why this wouldn't have been the single that they released, but whatever wound up, you know, probably the most well-known. The guitar, the lead guitarist, it wasn't until this song that I realized that he doesn't know how to do vibrato. Hmm. That's why the guitar feels like there's no feel. He just hits the notes and there's literally no bending. It's just the notes. So it just feels like dead. Like stiff. At least, yeah, at least when you're used to listening to competent guitar players, just bend even a little bit. It's like it's like a human voice, right? If you're just singing straight versus some vibrato that has a little bit of feel in there. This was the first song that I was like, oh, that's what's going on. That's why I don't like this guy's style. Yeah, I wonder if, as far as the single goes, I wonder if, like, <laughs> my guess is that Albini did not like uh, Black Francis either. And maybe like Kim deal a little bit more because I know he worked with the breeders after that. So maybe ah, he was like, okay, okay. she's the one. She's the actual star here. So let's try mm-hmm, to get her out mm-hmm. front. Yeah. Which I don't. Oh, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. I don't disagree yeah. with him, but I think that in the fullness of time, you know, Black Francis, Frank Black, he's he's made a he's made quite the impact. Yeah. Let's uh move things along to the next track on our focus list, which is a song called Cactus. Sorry, I'm just going to like preempt everyone. This song fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? It's the best song on the album. <laughs> Did you know that David Bowie recorded a version of this for an album that he released in 2002? Are you fucking kidding me? I don't even really? I, I, Having not heard it, I guarantee you it's better. <laughs> it can't be worse. I, it cannot be worse. Okay, so this is super horny dude, right? He's like, I just basically want to jerk off on your soiled clothes, right? Go out. 
get you know get your dress run out in the desert with your dress on and then send it to me like david bowie doesn't ever need to do that because david bowie's the sexiest person who's ever lived <laughs> he doesn't need to be a horny lech like this he just people would be like they're just sending him unsolicited their their worn underwear and stuff like that <laughs> i thought this was the first 12 seconds i was like oh they covering a t-rex song right. oh no wait they're <laughs> yes. way worse than t-rex this is terrible <laughs> When they do the like, I, when they spell out the pixies. Oh, oh my god. god, that was the worst moment on the whole album. Yeah, I was like, why are you spelling your name? This is terrible. This is, uh, listen, as a guy who was in the chop, who we used our <laughs> name in every single song we possibly could, <laughs> I was like, that's that's super lame, and I am now regretting my choice of doing that in a previous band fifteen years ago. You guys didn't cover YMCA, but with C-H-O-P? <laughs> we did not. But when we did uh, Slippery People, we'd always say, uh, look from the bottom to the chop. <laughs> oh, that's great. By the way, if you're looking for some music from the chop, they're available on all major podcast or not podcasting, but streaming platforms. Just mm-hmm. look for the chop. That's right. Look for Ghost Beef, baby. Yes. This song seems like it was unfinished. Like that ending is just horrendous. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's like, I, I remember listening to it and just, I was like, wait, the track's over already. Like I thought, what, what is happening? Funny. I will say though, to continue the, the Kim deal sort of love fest, she was so opposed to doing the spelling out the pixies because if it was a T-Rex thing that she just refused to do it. So it's really only the three other band members. She was just straight up. Like, I'm not participating in that. So Somehow tone of voice got across that she was the best one in the band. Yes, <laughs> totally. Good on her. Right near the end at the 145 mark, the delivery of the last two lines where he just like sitting here. It's just so painful that, and you just know he's just trying. He's just trying to be weird. And to me, it feels so put on. And again, maybe it's good that they crammed all of this crap into a single song that's really bad. So this is like their garbage can. But it it does give me, you're right, like his affectation on so many songs on this album give me the, are you freaked out squares vibe? Right. And just like, Freaking out the squares, yeah. No, like I'm not freaked out. Just, I don't know, be yourself, be real. Well, that's what I think was interesting about this band is, is, they are, they don't look like rock stars. And again, not, not that you can judge from appearances, but they like, they just, they look like regular kind of just goofballs. I, I don't know how to explain it. Like they're ugly. Is that what you're saying? Except no, for Kim, no. Kim Deal's pretty cute. I gotta say Kim Deal's pretty cute. But I, uh, Frank Black, you know, I, I can take or leave. Oh, but yeah, but David Lovering, you gotta, you got a hard on for him. He's looking good. <laughs> hey, I got a thing for magicians. What can I say? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh. Let's move to the final track on our list today, which is a track called Brick is Red. (laughs) 
the guitar the guitar tone on these opening couple seconds sounds like a rubber band strewn across a tissue box that you would make as a kid. It's just I don't know how they mic'd it. It it almost doesn't sound like a guitar. It bothered me. This is Sorry. the track where my first note is they have a dedicated lead guitar player. Like <laughs> it's so terrible. It's so terrible. I actually like the guitar riff. I'm not saying I like it all like throughout, but I think that intro riff is is pretty hip personally. Whoa, whoa. I don't the intro riff is not what I'm talking about. There's a guitar solo in the song. Oh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. That is it's just Bush League playtime (laughs) kitty shit. Like it's terrible. throw out again that this is the last song on their album <laughs> did they just not think about that were they just like oh this this is the last song oh shit okay well whatever i guess we already printed them so cool this is such a terrible choice for the last song of the album it's like uh reminds me of you know when i worked at kmart and i just like clocked out immediately with like jobs left undone it's just like <laughs> yeah whatever it's time to go man like yep <laughs> yeah, yeah incidentally i think this is the song that that Charles played for Kim Deal when she came to quote unquote audition for, mm-hmm. for the band. And this is, I guess the song, one of the songs that she, that like drew her to want to play with a group for whatever that's worth. I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's got a few cool parts, a few components, but it, it doesn't hang together. It's interesting that I don't hate this song, even though it's performed really poorly, but I think the structure is there. Right. So I, I just imagine a world where a competent band played this and how much better it would be. But yeah, I didn't actually hate this song. Yeah. What I, are you I think a square, of, Adam? You like right? good players who make songs <laughs> you sound like pleasant. Come on, you loser. <laughs> no, but yeah, I thought the chord pattern, it where it went was was engaging enough that I actually, you know, listened to the whole thing. You might as well just be listening to Ice House, Adam. Come on. <laughs> I feel like some of the Hardcores might come after us on on this one because they had their. Oh, I'm excited! Yeah, I want to hear. I do. Hey, bring bring the ruckus. We we love it. Okay, so I think we've uh, aired our grievances, and uh, the last thing is to vote on whether or not you actually need to listen to this album before the Grim Reaper knocks on your door. Let's start with you, Tom. Is this a must listen? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And I know it's, I've been bitching about this album the entire time. I think it's an important album. I, I do. I, I'll, I'll go with the same vote that I gave on the Smiths, which is I didn't particularly like listening to it. I liked it way more than the Smiths Queen is Dead, by the way. I will listen to some of the tracks on this album, but yeah, just the lineage. It's important. It was different. It was very different than what was popular at the time. And it pointed in to the future in a way that most of the popular music at the time could not say that it did. So yeah, yeah, you should listen to it and then complain about it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it's the key ingredient. (laughs) That's that's what we do here. All right, Adam, what say you? Yeah. So this is Adam. This album was, I think came out 10 months before the fine young cannibals. She drives me crazy. Right. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) 
This juxtaposed to that, I think right there is kind of, kind of your in for this list. But I, I, as much as I dislike this week, I'm falling in with Tom. It's like, I can just see so many of the bands I loved as a teenager. And even into my twenties, like you can tie a direct line to this garage sound. And these guys were 10 years early on that, on that wave of music. So yeah, you got to listen to this. I'm going to agree. I think it's a, a pretty solid yes for me. And, you know, much to Tom's point, I think we spent a lot of time on the things that weren't so palatable, but at, at the same time, they're, they were just forerunners to so much music that, that we, we grew up on. And I think to ignore this, you know, it, it's sort of like when you go back to like old school basketball and you see these play, players that, that it, in retrospect, seem kind of crude and unathletic, but, you know, they paved the way for, you know, the the Michael Jordans of the world. And so I think it, with that said, like it is an important piece of, of of musical education. And there are some things that I like about it. There are a few tracks that I, I definitely will will keep on the playlist, even if it is a bit of a uneven album musically. I, w- I would say it's a yes. I need you guys to to help me out here. But what was the song started with a bass from the 90s and it was like sitting around the house. You're talking about better than Ezra. Good. Better than Ezra. Yes. So every time on this album when there was like that just an intro, dun, 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 dun. I, my brain immediately went to better than Ezra. So there's another one. I will another say, band in the lineage. Pixies are better than better than Ezra. <laughs> Definitely better than better than Ezra. Yeah, but feel, not their not their follow up. I remember running through the wet grass, falling to oh, step yes. desperately <laughs> wanting. Yeah. Was that it? I'm pretty it sure it was called desperately wanting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Don't act like you don't know. It does. <laughs> oh, I think it. I think here's the entire second verse. <laughs> we bust out my signed LP over here. You weren't rocking out to Y100. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I listen. Uh, I will. I will freely admit. I know I was a begrudging yes, but like some of these songs are stuck in my head and will make it to playlists of mine. So I can't hate too a much. True, a true honor. Absolutely. Put another trophy on the case. Pixies, you did it. You're in. They also have another album. Their their, their second album was called Doolittle, which, which did make the list, which is much poppier and much more, you know, I see a little bit more of a line there to some of the pop. You know, worth checking out. I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that at some point. But yeah, there you have it, folks. Let's move on to uh, the, the mailbag. I, I hear Tom is is in possession of that today. What, what you got for us? All right. Thank you very much. I have stolen the mailbag from Rob, absconded with it to my home here. I do have one email. This is Carlos from Cheyenne, and he writes, great job on the Sam Cooke episode. Thank you very much, Carlos. I did lead that one. I've always loved his voice but had never heard him perform live. So it was fun hearing you all dissect it and go through his story. You mentioned that George Gershwin was considered secular and therefore racy at the time that Sam was starting out, trying to make a crossover into gospel. An interesting tidbit I wanted to mention is that Sam's most well-known Gershwin tune was Summertime, one of the most recorded jazz standards Ah. of all time. And that Sam's first proper hit, You Send Me, was actually the B-side of this release that broke him into mainstream success. Excellent point, I didn't Carlos. know he did. Yeah. I didn't know he did a version of Summertime. I'm going to have to go dig that up because I absolutely love that song. Yeah, he does a really great version of Summertime. I mean, you know, you can already hear it in your head. It's Summertime. Yeah, it's exactly. sung by Sam Cooke. He's got one of the greatest voices of all time. Voice, yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, Carlos, for writing in. We really appreciate it. Anyone who wants to tell us what we did right, what we did wrong, why you love us, why you hate us, why you love or hate the artists that we've been covering, write us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Tell us where you're writing from. We always love hearing from our fans and or detractors. We read them all take them all into our hearts and minds and souls and they get a little blacker by the day (laughs) (laughs) i can see the pixies fans mobilizing now to to brigade our inbox (laughs) good you know what the last thing i want is apathy i'll take hate over apathy oh yeah bring it bring it (laughs) cool cool all right so let's uh let's actually go back to tom and oh yeah get our homework assignment for this week what what are we going to be listening to Thank you very much. We are going to bust out that albinator. I have this switch on it. One side says quiet. One side says loud. I'm wondering which side <laughs> I'm going to put it on for this the particular spin. Uh, I'm sorry. Pixie the switch. Pixie, yeah. Pixie switch. Yes. All righty. So we are going to give that a spin and see what we will be listening to next week. Drum roll, please. Quite a departure. This is going to be Private Dancer by Tina Turner. Ooh. I dance wow. for money. I do yeah. what you want me to do. You know, I've never listened to a Tina Turner album in my life. I know, I know the hits that I heard growing up as a kid on the radio, on Top 40 radio, but I'd never listened to an album. I'm pretty life. sure this has What's Love Got to Do With It, which ah, might have been her best selling. Yes. Well, I, Proud Mary might have been her best selling, but I, that was Ike and Tina, not just Tina. So that might be her just best right, right. album of all time. Yeah. There was like a whole thing when we were kind of in our younger phase where they were trying to sell Tina Turner as like a sex symbol. But wasn't, yeah, wasn't she like 60 at that <laughs> Exactly. <point? laughs> but they were like, she was like the spokeswoman for like a pantyhose brand. And they were like, look oh, at these yeah. legs. I'm like, I love <laughs> Nothing against her. She's 60 years old. She looks great for 60. She looks amazing. She moves better at 60 than I do today. Yeah. Uh, than I did so, 20 years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, well, who, yeah. Who am I kidding? So, you know, maybe the times were a little bit more progressive back in the day. Now they're trying to talk about like different body type inclusion and stuff like that. But hey, you know, back in the 90s, they were pumping a sex symbol on us that was born in like 1948 or something like that. <laughs> Explains a lot of my issues today. (laughs) (laughs) Very interesting. Uh, Okay. Well, sounds like we have a a fun week ahead of us. Do a little bit of research and and check that one out. With that, I'm Alan. I'm Tom. And I'm Adam. Boosh. By the way, Tina Turner was born in 1938. <laughs> so oh my God. God. They were trying to bump her. She was in her late 50s. <laughs> <laughs>